Hello, and welcome to the Transform Sales Podcast. Today, I am so delighted to have Joshua McKenzie with me. How are you, Joshua? Doing really well. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. Let me tell you a bit about Joshua. He is a founder and startup executive with more than 20 years in transforming science into software. He is the founder and CEO of Delving, an enterprise platform to track and manage changes to mission-critical Excel workbooks. Previously, Joshua held senior technical roles in the field as a CTO of many different companies. He is an active angel investor and humanitarian. So, Joshua, how did you start your career and how did you become this fantastic person transforming the way people use Excel? I think I started my career the same way I have carried on with an abundance of curiosity. So I started writing software when I was six on an Apple II Plus, and there was something about the desire to make machines do what I wanted and the struggle to get that to happen that was just really exciting for me. And I, I kept going. I was really fortunate early in my career to start early enough that you didn't need a degree, you didn't need any kind of formal training. You could sort of just say, hey, I can do this, let me show you that I can do this, and then I, I had opportunity, which is something I see really lacking these days. So I you know, stumbled from one thing to another, and then by the time I was in my 20s, I already had worked on things. I was early to the internet, I was early to web browsers, I was early to cloud. Yeah, it just gives me a lot of perspective. So it's easier now to look at things and go, oh, what's happening with AI? Well. It feels very similar to some of these other transitions. And so, you know, I get to be a trusted advisor just by being very old. Ah, oh, so six-year-old Joshua was playing with code and writing computer programs and doing some cool stuff. What advice would you give six-year-old Joshua? Probably focus on soft skills earlier. You know, learning to code is great, but I didn't actually learn how to work in technology until I learned how to work with people. And that, that was a lesson that came much later. So. Ah, that's a good one. A lot of people really forget about the importance of soft skills, empathy, communication, listening, like all of those things. And so as I like to say, when you're a really smart person, so when you're a really smart person and you're very technology focused or, you know, number trust, whatever that smart is for you, those soft skills, they come secondary. And a lot of times we stumble through early career when we don't have those soft skills and we don't even realize that they're missing. Yeah. I taught juggling at one point. You know, I've, I've had that weird dual career of like technologist and circus performer. And when you're teaching juggling, you teach people to practice with their offhand, right? So if you're right-handed, you practice new tricks with your left hand first because your dominant hand is going to be able to do it. And you have to force yourself to work on where you're weakest. And I think of that in soft skills for technologists as well, right? Practice with your offhand. Practice the soft skills that don't come naturally to you because that's what's going to hold you back. It's a great oh, lesson, right? I love that. Practice with your offhand. What doesn't come naturally? What's not so easy for you? Do those things. Do the hard things first and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said you, you kind of stumbled through your, your 20s and, and you're figuring things out. Tell us about some of those stumbles and lessons that you learned. One of the hardest things to learn in technology, I think, when you learn early on that you can make machines and computers do what you want, there's this gap that you assume that what people ask you to make them do is the right thing, right? Mm. Like, oh, this is the problem we want to solve or this is how the software should work. 
And you don't necessarily question that or you don't learn to question that early enough. And so I definitely had stumbling moments where we built exactly what the client had asked for and it was not the right thing. And we should have known better. We should have, you know, asked those questions early on. Often that meant kind of 11th hour save. I, I was working on the Netscape browser in 2003 or 2004 and we had been working on it for way too long, like over a year. It hadn't shipped, it hadn't been announced because every time we get something built that was sort of in the spec, people would try it and go, mm, this isn't actually what we want. I was like, okay, well, we'll build something else. What is the thing you actually wanted to do? And it was finally scheduled to be reviewed in the Wall Street Journal by Walt Mossberg, who was the big deal at the time in tech. If Walt liked your software, it was gonna be famous. If Walt didn't like your software, it was going nowhere. And the day before the review, Walt was swapping emails with one of the product managers. And he said, you know what would be really cool? There's all these bad websites on the internet. What would be really cool is if the browser knew which websites were bad and didn't let you go to them, like warned you before you tried to go to this website. And so we got this email the day before, like, yeah, that really would be cool. Can we build that overnight? Oh. Which we did. We built a prototype of it overnight. That ended up being like the cool feature in Netscape 8 was that it had this real-time blacklist that would keep you safe from going to the wrong parts of the, of the internet. And it was revolutionary at the time. Nowadays, a lot of these problems are solved, right? So um, we basically stayed up all night because all of the things we built that we thought were amazing, Walt wasn't interested in. What he was interested mm -hmm. in was the problem of the moment. Yeah which we should have known because we were on the internet all day. We're like, oh yeah, oops, like that corner is scary. Oh, that corner is dangerous. So not building what people are asking for, but building what they need. Mm. Or building what they're trying to ask for, but they don't know how to tell you. Yeah, people don't really know. When I'm in, when I teach salespeople, I'm like, people don't know what their problems are, right? It's just yeah. like you go to the doctor and you're like, so my stomach hurts and I actually want you to remove my gallbladder and my appendix. And while you're in there, take out a part of my stomach too. You know, like what doctor would ever go for that? And right. so I actually call it sales malpractice when you allow mm. your customers to self-diagnose, when you allow your customers to tell you what they need. But as you said, it's like listening to the problems that they're having and then backing into the solution because you may not have the solution ready-made, but really listening and being triggered by what they say, and then you back into it. I love that you just emphasize listening because there are so many places where technologists and salespeople go off the rails because they're not listening or because they think they know better than what they're hearing. Yeah. You know, in the classic example, I used to sell against myself a lot. I had to learn this early on. <laughs> like if the customer says they have this problem, they have that problem. And it might be even worse than they're telling you. It's certainly not less bad, right? They don't bring it up with a salesperson unless it's actually a real problem. And so I would imagine it's like, yeah, I mean, we could fix that for you, but that isn't really that serious. And so I would talk them out of having us solve a problem and go work on something else. I was like, well, don't you really care about it? And they're like, no, no, we certainly don't. We have this huge problem. Yeah. And I would feel bad in early career moments are like, how are they paying us so much money to work on this one thing? How could this be worth this much to them? Yeah. People would say, you know what? They've been charged. We worked on a project. It was billing software. And I was like, how can billing software be worth $40 million? Whatever it was. It was a <laughs> team of a hundred people working for two years, three years or something. And I was like, how is this worth so much? And they're like, they already tried and failed. They had a different team that they paid for five years that wow. didn't ship anything. 
So wow. the scale of these problems sometimes are just, you can't talk the customer out of solving. If it's a real problem for them, you have to listen. Yes. Solve the thing. Like if they say this is bothering me, you yeah. dig, 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 understand the what, why, how around that one thing. And as you said, as technologists, as salespeople, as human beings, we have our own agenda. And so we take our own agenda and we go on our own path and we want to pull people in along the path we want them to go to, but we don't want to stay there. And if you stay right there, you fix that one problem. And that one problem, maybe it's something that takes you a month to fix. It's a small ticket item, but you have a customer for life. Because you fix the biggest thing, that, that is the thing that is bothering them. That is the thing that is costing them an additional eight hours of work a week, a month, whatever. Like, fix the issue. Yeah, absolutely. Those minutes that you're talking about, eight hours a week or a month or whatever, it varies. How much pain you have to solve really depends on who you're doing it for, right? We had a, a notion in, in the browser days of like six seconds. Mm. If this is six seconds of pain every time I use the web browser, like... That's hundreds of thousands of hours a year for the number of people using Netscape, right? Whereas if you're building something in the enterprise and they're like, we're only gonna ever have 100 people in our company use this software. It's not like every single person is using it. But for those 100 people, it's half of, the, of their job. That's life-changing. You know, just imagine not spending <laughs> whatever it is, an extra four hours a day, you know, in the case of delving, like manually comparing spreadsheets. Yeah. Right? Just. What would you do with half of your time back? I know. There's this funny sign that I see at times. And, you know, when somebody's in the bathroom, they're like, just one second. And it says, it depends. What side of the door are you on? That depends how long one second is, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah. if you're the one who's just finishing up or you're the one who's like, I really have to use the bathroom. And you're right. Because now in the days of we want things fast, it's like, oh, this app doesn't open fast enough delete done yeah. right like yeah. how so literally and yeah. you go to the next thing and so yeah. really understanding the value of somebody's time is so important if it's an executive and you're saving that executive 10 minutes in a pre-read of an email before they have to step into a meeting that's yeah. different than saving somebody who's opening a door every single day but they don't have to manually open the door right and yeah. so like really understanding what are the challenges people are having and how is my solution how can I come alongside them? You said something else that I really want to lean in on, which is this notion that you're asking them to tell you what is painful, but when you solve that first pain, you build this trusted relationship where now they're going to share other issues with you, right? And I see, we used to see it all the time in sales coaching, people were like, you know, go ask them questions and listen, go ask them questions and listen. I was like, that's true, but... Every executive has a hundred sales reps showing up saying, let me hear about your biggest problem. And they're like, oh God, we're, I'm going to tell you my biggest problem. And you're going to go in and do nothing. And you're going to come back and sell me your widget, right? So you earn the right to ask them about their biggest problem yeah. by asking them about their most timely problem first. Yeah. Like what's the smallest problem I can actually help you with that would matter today. Yeah. And then I get the right to hear about your biggest problem. Absolutely. Earn the right for the ask. Like, yeah. don't just go in there. What's keeping you up at night? Like, okay, get out of my office, right? Totally. Like, get out of my office. It's, yeah. you know, as an executive, I noticed that these are the types of things that typically affect people in your position. Do any of those resonate with you? Oh yeah. You know, that one. 
And they're like, oh, you've done a little research. You came prepared to the meeting. That's a whole different conversation that we can talk about. But so I wanted to ask you, as you went from being a technologist to moving into a CTO, how Mm -hmm. did you transition in your career from being that individual contributor to being chief technology officer at these corporations? Great question. I mean, there were two or three really pivotal moments. Like if I think back on it, you know, my first programming job was I literally walked in the room where a friend was working and I was like, I think I could help. I'll work for free for a day and you tell me if I got a job at the end of it. And I just started doing work. That, by the way, is not necessarily a great way to get a job, but when it works, it's amazingly effective. Because like, we're not going to interview. I'm not going to tell you about what I can do. I'm just going to show you. And if it's good enough, let's go. After that, my second job, uh, which I did go through more of a formal like interview, get hired, start work. And a week into that job, they were like, do you want to be the team lead? Oh. And I was like, I mean, I guess so. They're like, well, you're already telling everyone what to do anyway. So maybe we should formalize that. And I think the that sense of like this whole project matters to me. I'm not someone who's just going to show up and do my piece and then sort of assume it's all coming together. Not that I don't trust other people. It's that I can see the gaps between what they're doing and what I'm doing going, they're doing a good job here and I'm doing a good job here. But if nobody's looking at how these fit together, all we have is a box of Lego parts. Mm. That's where most projects fall down, right? Is the gaps between the teams, the gaps between the employees. And so that was a weekend. They were like, hey, you clearly are looking at these gaps. Why don't you take this team lead role? (laughs) Then I very quickly discovered that also involved being diplomatic, which I did not know how to do. (laughs) And I didn't know how to care about doing for a long time. So later on, I learned diplomacy. That was a a real career limiter for a while. The second pivotal moment, I had that like engineers feeling that sales was dirty. I was like, I don't want to be in sales. Sales is gross. You know, my parents had been salespeople. They'd sold vacuum cleaners door to door when I was a kid. And I was like, I don't want to be in sales. I'm an engineer. Do it, do it. So, but I would get called into customer meetings during the discovery phase. And I didn't realize that was sales. And they would say, well, like, let's talk about what we want to build. And I'm most comfortable at the whiteboard. You'll see I have a whiteboard behind me. I always have whiteboards, every wall of every room I'm in. And so I just took a pen and I went to the whiteboard and I was like, let me draw you a picture of what I think you're asking us to build and how I think it could fit together. And I just thought out loud in front of them. And they're like, yes, that will just, what you just said, we'll just <laughs> we want build it. that. And so my boss at the time, we left the room and he's like, you're my sales engineer now. And I was like, uh, what? He's like, yeah, it's like, you can still be the coder and you can still run this team, but now you're in sales engineering. I was like, as long as it's just what I just did, that's great. So that was the first transition was like just being in front of a customer, listening to them and then repeating back what they said they wanted and how we think we can address it. I was like, oh, that's sales engineering. I like this. So that was that first transition. And then it escalated, you know, then we got big projects and I had to start hiring because we didn't have a big enough team. I was like, well, I have to build all this myself if I don't figure out how to hire people. Mm. So every one of those moments afterwards was like, I have to learn to do this thing because it's in the way of a thing I already said I would do. Mm. And I learned to raise money because I wanted to build projects that we didn't have a customer for. Mm. And I was like, this would be really cool. We need someone to, to pay for us to build this. Like, let's just get someone to buy it ahead of time. They're like, that's just called investing. Like somebody pays you to build it and then they own a piece. So I went into, you know, learning how to raise money. And as soon as you can raise money and hire people and do sales, you're an executive. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Like, yeah. 
You had all the pieces. You had all the pieces. Being a sales engineer, that is how I cut my teeth in sales. I'm a chemist by trade. And so that's what we were. We were technical salespeople and we had to understand how things worked. We had to understand the engineering, the science, the everything, do our own demos. And so we weren't just these, you know, door to door salespeople. And so when I think about sales, I remember, or I think about it in the way that I was brought up. And as you Mm -hmm. said, it's like you actually gave that customer value. And that is what we want all salespeople to do. And then I just love the way that you described your career. So very engineer. It's just like, these are the building blocks that it took me to get to this place. And it literally was, I became a sales engineer and then I did this and then I did this and then I did that. And so when you have that logical fashion or the logical way to think about things and solve problems, externally, it translates to internally being able to fix problems and build yourself for that next position that you don't even know that you want. It's also, you know, people talk about like dress for the job you want or act as if you have the job that you want, but that actually really works. I made a habit of this even before I started working in software. Right out of high school, I was working in carpentry, right? And I sort of had this brief moment where I was like, maybe I want to be a farmer. Maybe I want to be a carpenter because I'd been coding since I was a kid. I was like, I don't know. Is that even a career? And I was working as a carpenter and every day I would go in to, to ask my boss, I was like, what else could I be doing to do a better job? In this job that I have, what else would you want to see me bring to the table? Like, I'm doing this and this and this. What else is missing? And I just, I internalized that idea of like, always be looking for the rest of what your job should contain. And people notice and they're like, oh, well, if you're willing to do more, here's the rest of this other role. Mm -hmm. And so when I manage people, I do the same thing. I was like, you have this job. This is what's involved in it. I know you want this next job. Here's what else is in that scope. Learn to do these things. You can practice in these ways. Here's projects you could practice that on. You can do your own discovery. But, you know, in that relationship, I'm almost the customer. I'm saying, here's my pain. Solve my pain for me. And like, you got a promotion out of it. This is the role. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also, there's some revisionist history, you know, like the first couple of times I became a manager, I hated it. I was like, Put me back in. I want to play. I want to be in IC again. (laughs) It's really hard when you're good at doing a thing, when you're a good programmer, to then not be coding. Because you get to the end of the day and the end of the week and the end of the month and you're like, did I do any work? All of these people I'm quote unquote in charge of did a lot of work. I didn't do any work. I must not be doing a good job. So you have to learn to take pride in your team's accomplishments. And I've seen sales managers go off the rails with this too, right? You get to the end of the quarter and you're looking for like, what was my big deal? And if you're trying to do your own deal, you're like, you're not managing well. If you're camping on you, that should have been someone else's deal. That should have been someone on your team's deal. Yeah, I love that. I call it being a player coach. And I often use the example of how often do you see the coach of your favorite sports team and I'll use football, throw his headset off, go put on his gear, And go say, okay, I'm going to run this play. What happens when you do that? You take your eye off the whole entire field. And so you can't figure out what else happened, what else is coming at you. And so as a sales manager, when you have to close every deal, when you have to be on every call, when you have to approve every proposal, like when you're, you're doing too much tactically and it is a very big mind shift transition, you are no longer rewarded or you no longer get your, what is the word? You no longer feel excited about a deal that you've closed, a project that you specifically worked on. It's about the five or 10 or 15 people on your team. It's about yeah. their wins or your wins. And that 
is the thing that I'm, I tell people, I'm like, if you're not okay with that, like even thinking about that, you probably shouldn't go into management and it's okay. Yeah. Everybody doesn't need to be a manager. It's okay. Yeah. There's another transition. I went through this. This again, took me two or three tries to really get over. You learn to manage people and that works. And you're like, I'm proud of what they got done. And then learning to manage managers is another step removed again, because now you have to figure out how to coach people going through that same loss of ego. And you're so far removed, you don't even really know what work is getting done at a certain point, especially in the CEO seat. You know, I remember the first time I came into the office and there were people in the office that I didn't know who they were. They had been hired by people that I managed. No, they'd been hired by people that were managed by people I managed. Mm. And I wasn't even aware the job rec was open, right? And so you get to this point, you're like, not only do I not know who you are in specific, like we haven't had a conversation, I don't even know who you are in like theory. Like <laughs> what role was open? Um, the bigger your organization gets, the more that's the sense of like, I'm working in this abstract space now of like, what are the goals and what is the tone and what are our values mm -hmm. and how are we scaling? Strategy I loved as a child, like the idea that you could be the coach and like, we're going to run this play and that play and over the season, we're going to get good in that and bad at these things. But the reality of strategy is it is still informed by like, who have you got on the roster? Yeah. What can your players do? Mm -hmm. um, that was another one of those really painful transitions for me. Originally, I imagined that everyone who would be good on my team would be a clone of me, right? And so if they were just like me, they were going to be great. And if they weren't like me, eh, maybe there was something else they could do for the org. Yeah. Um, and realizing over time that like, one, that was just totally wrongheaded. I'm very weird. And two... <laughs> Every one of these plays can be run in different ways. Mm -hmm. I know some incredibly shy, very successful sales engineers. Mm -hmm. I was like, how can you be good in that job if you're not like outgoing and extroverted <laughs> and like willing to like jump up on the, literally stand on the table. There's a photo of me standing on a table in a customer's conference room because the mic was bad and we had gone, it was like one of these global things where we're in a conference room with one group of people and there's other offices that have dialed in. The mic was bad and the mic was in the ceiling. And I was like, I don't want anyone remote to miss this. So I just stood up on the table. So my mouth was as close as possible to the mic. So I had this whole room of people and somebody took a photo. They're like, this is what Josh does in, in sales meetings. And I was like, okay, I, I get that other people have different styles, but it was really watching close up people who were nothing like me do really well, just with that, bringing different strengths to the table. Yeah. Right. So I think their football analogies are so successful as like, you know, Quarterbacks don't have to be the biggest on the field. They have to throw well. They have to run fast. You just take your players and figure out where they should play. I absolutely love it. Leading through influence and impact. You don't have to do their job. You don't have to know every little thing that's going on within the organization. And you're right. It's the higher you get up into the organization. And I know for me as being a business owner, when there were things that I was like, I don't even know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to do that. And that's great, right? Because when you start out, you do all the things, right? And so it's like, I touch everything. And you're like, I don't even remember how to do that. I did make a SLP for that. So let's refer to that. And so as you are growing up within an organization, whether it's a corporation or you're a small business owner, the less that you actually touch and do day to day, that tells you that you are strategically growing your organization. Because if you know everything that's happening, if you know every person's name and everything that they're doing, you're not leading, you're managing. And that is the goal for everyone to get out of that managing, 
management feel and be a leader so you can be a strategic visionary. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, I mean, coming back to this, like we don't want a box of Legos, right? We need all of these different functions staying connected and staying aware of each other. That increasingly becomes your job as a leader is to say, hey, we closed this one deal this quarter that was an amazing story. And we need to know that everyone in the org knows this story and learned from it. And so how are we gonna create an opportunity for the folks involved in that play to share it? Mm -hmm. Where are we gonna schedule that? What's the format? How do we make those happen? You know, and again, it's like, this is all pre-COVID, but for four years at Pivotal, my job was to get on a plane every other week. You know, we had 27 offices around the world. And I was like, it's too expensive to get our field together every week, but there's important things happening every week. So I'm just going to fly and tell people stories in person, you know, meet with the customers while I'm there. But mostly it was about sharing the lessons across the field. There are 800 mm -hmm. people in our field organization. And I would go somewhere every week and say, okay, this isn't a QBR. QBR happens once a quarter, but this yeah. is continuous training on this is the play we ran last week. This is the story. This is what MasterCard just did. This is what JP Morgan Chase just did. This is what Boeing is doing. Mm -hmm. um, partly, those are the stories the customer wants to hear as well. They're like, what are our peers doing? What are folks on the other side of the planet doing? Mm -hmm. But also, the, the teams need to know what's working because it changes. Tech changes so fast. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Literally, it's, you know, like we're talking about AI now and who knows if somebody's listening to this podcast in two or three years, I was like, oh, that was just, oh, we're on whatever. <laughs> we're like, the metaverse is a normal thing now. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter okay, what it life. is. Like it literally, technology changes and what we have to remember as leaders, we have to adapt and change also, right? The yep. world is changing, the world is moving. Things are very, very different. And so in order to stay up to date, we have to be pliable and flexible enough to change. So I'm curious, how did you transition from being a corporate person um, to starting your own business? And tell us a little bit about that story. I've done that three or four times now. And there's a whole blog post somebody wrote famously about that as a career arc for technology, right? Going from startups to big companies and back. The first time I really went corporate, it was to take a job at NASA. And that was extremely weird. Like... NASA, one, is amazing, but two, is a big U.S. government bureaucracy, yeah. right? Very old agency, very, like, progressive in some ways and calcified in others. <laughs> uh, and it was a huge culture shock for me. But I learned a lot from that transition. And so when I went back out to Startup Land, again, I started a company right after that, I had a lot of good lessons learned of how big organizations function and what their real problems are and how real those problems are when you're inside a, a bureaucracy. And then I sold that company, Piston, and went into Pivotal. And Pivotal was a funny one because it was 3,000 people, but it was only a year old. It was this strange spin out. So we had all of this like, oh, we're a big company. We are grown up. We have, you know, 800 people in the field, but we're figuring out who we are and what we're about as well. And so we don't have a sales playbook and we're writing it. And these products are brand new and no one's heard about them. So we're building messaging as we're going. And I just, I love those transitions. You learn so much going both directions. You know, Pivotal, a lot of the folks there had come from VMware and EMC. And so they hadn't been in a startup in a while, mm. right? They were a little bit out of the loop of like, hey, this is what we're doing that's different. You know, I brought in a lot of tools and techniques 
like AHA is one of them. That's a product management tool, which is really common now. Everyone uses it. But at the time, it was brand new, and I was a beta tester. And I was like, check this out. This is the thing we're using. You know, they're like, oh, I don't know. You know, I was a beta tester for Slack back when I was at a startup, and it was brand new. And I was like, look at this weird messaging thing. So those back and forths just feel really natural to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this latest with Delving, we did an IPO at Pivotal, which is this big, crazy moment. You go to New York and you're on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and yeah. everyone's high-fiving and toasting and then your customers come with you and it's this huge high, but you still have to go back to the office and run a business the next day, mm-hmm. right? At that point, I had been like sort of on the road at least half the time for almost a decade and my kids were in high school and I was like, I'm going to take a year. I'm just going to take maybe a half a year or something, spend some time with my kids, which I did. And it was amazing. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to, it's startup time again, right? Let's get back in the saddle, but do it again from startup land. I love weird, hard, boring problems. <laughs> you know, like the whole thing I did at NASA, what I became sort of well known for was cloud infrastructure software, open source mm-hmm. cloud infrastructure, this thing called OpenStack got really big, but it's really boring. <laughs> It's like, Mm. how do you automate the provisioning of virtual machines, right? Mm. Boring and important. Yeah. The Netscape browser, what was really interesting about that was like boring, important security features. Yeah. And so Delving is about boring, important spreadsheets, the spreadsheets that really matter. I like boring and important. Tell us more. Boring, important spreadsheets. What does that mean and how do you help organizations with their boring, important spreadsheets? All right. Well, there's almost a billion people who use a spreadsheet at least once a month, right? Like it was the original killer app for the PC. It was the thing that made people buy a Mac was Mm. like, oh my God, have you seen these spreadsheets you can do on computers? And most of what we do in spreadsheets hasn't changed since like the mid eighties. Like the grid of the cells, the formatting, the formulas, how we use them. The fact is that's the most common form of programming in the world. And most people don't know it's programming. The people doing it don't know it's programming. They're not aware of it. So with the kind of programming that I do, we use a bunch of tools to keep us from making terrible mistakes. We use source control. We use linters. We use error checkers. We use testing. And none of those tools exist for spreadsheets. So spreadsheets have more mistakes in them than any other kind of programming. And those mistakes like literally kill people. During COVID, people died because of spreadsheet mistakes. Mm. But even more pragmatically, like every sales meeting I've ever been in, every Monday meeting has a spreadsheet at the center of the meeting. It's like, what's the most likely for the quarter? Where are we at on those? Which deals are falling out? Which deals are pulled in? Like, and yeah, you've got your CRM systems. Probably you have five CRM systems. A lot. And you have the renewals, which aren't actually in the CRM because there's some integration problem, you know, and you've got your quoting tool. And so it's always a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. The bigger the organization, the more that is just a spreadsheet in a PowerPoint deck. Mm-hmm. And those numbers, nobody wants to read the whole spreadsheet. The head of sales doesn't, none of the VPs do. They just want to see what changed since last week. What are the changes? What are the deltas? Mm-hmm. This is so easy to do in software. And it was so hard to do with spreadsheets. That was the original impetus of like, why can't we just see changes? That's all we care about. Just track changes but for Excel yeah, and then give me a little bit of workflow. Like if I've got 20 people rolling up into that spreadsheet, I want to accept the changes from 17 of them Mm. and edit one of them and reject two. 
Mm. Right? I want people to be able to come in and change the formatting without messing up the numbers or the formulas. Mm. I want to be able to share that without messing with passwords. Like all of the like lock sheets and freeze sheets and then share a different password That's to five right, different people. Yeah. Mm. And when you get bigger, these are all like, this is sensitive data, right? The SEC fires and fines people for leaking these things. Like it was in an email and I forgot who was on the CC line. Like yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. Wow. So it's literally like process automation for spreadsheets. I love yeah. it. I love it. And it's it, every organization yeah. in theory has big ERP of some kind. Yeah. And in practice has a hundred thousand spreadsheets that matter sort of wired loosely back together to the ERP. Mm, I love it. I love it. So finding problems again, what did you do when you were like, I'm going to start a company? What are problems that I know people that I talk to? What are problems that I know customers out there are having and yeah. how can I help them solve it? And like Absolutely. you said, you found this glue, this thread that yep. connects so many companies, no matter if they're big or small. Yeah. So you have had a very dynamic and amazing career. And so I am curious, is there a specific experience personally or professionally that impacts the way that you show up and lead? Mm, there are a number that inform how I lead. I think I have two daughters. And so that's almost always top of mind to me is being aware of what their experience would be like if they were in the room. And I've also been fortunate to be, I mean, it's, I have the weird mix of like clear and obvious privilege, right? I'm tall, I'm male, I'm white, I have a beard, my hair looks a certain way. And so I automatically get space. I've also been like very poor, did not go to college, was a immigrant in a lot of situations where people are like, oh, you're from Canada? What does that even mean? Or vice versa. I was sounded like an American when I came to Canada. And so I don't know what it's like to feel unwelcome, but I know what I felt like when I felt unwelcome. Mm. And so I try and bring that to how I lead is to be aware that everybody in the room is having a unique experience of being there, of working for me, and of being felt welcome or unwelcome, right? Mm. And so I try and meet people at where they're at and create space for like, hey, everybody is showing up to do their work, to do their best work, to make a contribution and we are going to succeed or fail as a team, right? Mm. I didn't play a lot of sports as a child. I was a theater kid and a circus kid, but those have similar team dynamics of like, we are, we're going to win or lose. This play is going to be amazing or not based on us being able to function as a group. Mm. Um, so when somebody misses their cue, you don't start yelling at them on stage, right? Yeah. Like you ad lib, you fill the space, you yeah. give them another shot, you nudge, like something that makes the story go forward yeah. without highlighting them. Yeah. We all make mistakes. I love that. I love that because you really hit on points of what I call inclusivity and equity, right? Diversity yeah. is just like, oh, okay, I, I see something different. I want something different. But when you ensure that there's equity, so everybody feels comfortable in whatever contribution that they bring to the team, and they also feel included, right? So they're not just on the outside looking in. And as a leader, those are really, really, really important characteristics that you have to have to lead your company into excellence, which you have. You led companies into IPO and you started a new company. And to say that you don't even, you didn't finish college. I mean, like these are great, amazing things. And I thank you so much for sharing with our audience today. 
Absolutely. Really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for your time, your talent, and your expertise. This has been a fantastic conversation. Awesome. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Just like Josh, every single day, try to transform your sales. Until next time.